0: Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. In today's podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with Dave Brown from IPE 1031 based in, uh, well, I'm going to say it's Des Moines. Uh, but it's, well, okay, Dave, what's, what, what is the actual city that, uh, you're based in? We're in West Des Moines. It's just, yeah. uh, right next door to Des Moines. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh you know, it's a lot of times, uh, uh, I know when I was at CLA, we'd say we were in the Seattle office, but it was actually based in Bellevue, which was a suburb of Bellevue. So that's, that's fairly common, but, uh, as we always do, uh. Well, first, let's find out. How's the weather back in uh, West Des Moines right now? You know, it is lovely.
1: Um, We've had some nice rains. Uh, Subsoil moisture is uh, great. Uh, Had a dry spell. We're not quite ready to plant. That window's coming up. But, uh, you know, we've we've gone from typical uh, weather, hot to cold, back to warm. We've been fortunate, at least in central iowa uh, west of des moines to avoid some of the bad storm damage eastern iowa got you know hit pretty hard along with uh, other parts of the country but um gosh we, you know uh at least in our neck of the woods we're in pretty good shape paul well
0: good good uh, we had pretty good weather here this weekend it was uh, high 60s and sunny and uh, but we had a little bit of wind it was funny i we bought this uh, shade for our deck. And it's like a big 11 by 11 shade. And we we're putting it up and the wind caught it and almost knocked us over. And then my wife was over at her little outdoor table and she had a little umbrella there. And then when she sort of opened up the umbrella, the wind caught it, flew it up over our roof and landed on the other side of the house. So <laughs> wow. that's that's the problem right now dealing in Colorado is uh, it can be very nice, but the wind can come up. So yeah, uh, sounds but, like uh, it. But, uh, well, again, when we do these podcasts, we we'll always like to start off with your background. Let's, uh, let's go into, um, I think you were probably born and raised in Iowa, but let's go through that and your education and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I actually am a, a, a Texas guy. I uh, was born in Lubbock, Texas, uh, lived there for 11 years and uh, was a, uh, a traveling kid, my my. Uh, Dad's a retired FBI agent, so we took us to, to New York City for a couple years and then uh, back to Iowa. Oh gosh, when I was 12 or 13. So I'm I'm an Iowa kid, uh, you know, for, for the most part, but uh, grew up just between Iowa City and Cedar Rapids out in the country. I didn't farm, but uh, all my uh, best, best friends were farm kids. <clears throat> and then uh, after school, um, well i guess i went to iowa for undergrad and a business degree and then um uh, always joke i'm a recovering attorney i, I went to drake to, for law school and that's where i, I went my, met my wife and um uh gosh in, in sort of a roundabout way um started out as prosecutor prosecutor in a little town uh north of des moines for a few years and and started a a 1031 exchange company uh, recognizing an opportunity uh, that existed in in the state Uh, but that was in 2003 Um, and and, you know since uh, since then we have grown into one of the largest uh, qualified intermediary companies in our national trade organization Uh, we specialize heavily on farm and ranch properties uh you know obviously in the midwest just by virtue of being in iowa and and surrounding states but um you know we our company handles uh more than half of our exchanges our ag transactions um i and i I can't back up this statistic paul but if i if i were to to guess i suspect that uh by concentration we probably handle more farm and ag exchanges than any, any company like ours in the country so it's uh uh it's it's been quite a niche that we've we dropped into just by virtue of our location and and also um you know i do a little bit of firing myself so it's uh you know it's it's where we
0: belong yeah yeah now uh what is the name of that company uh of of which company Uh, Of your 1031 company
1: yeah it's ipe 1031 so we started out as iowa property exchange back when we started in 2003 and we just, you know, we do a lot of national business, so we transition to IPE 1031, and, and that's our, our website address for what it's worth. It's www.ipe1031.com. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah.
0: Well, um, and of course, uh, you know, my previous background, I was a, a part owner of a 1031 business myself in the 90s and then got out of it in 98, so you would have started about uh, five years after that. Um Just for our listeners out there, which are mostly farmers, but there's others out there, let's sort of dive into some of the key details as to, um, you know, what are the key details that farmers need to understand for 1031 exchanges. The first is before the Tax Reform Act back in 2017, late in 17, we could exchange personal property and real property but what can we exchange right now for for farmers out there?
1: Well, it's just real property. So uh, and obviously, Paul, as you know uh, very well, uh, the tax cuts and Jobs Act eliminated personal property exchanges, but replaced those with immediate expensing, which is now at eighty percent. And, and you know, as we know, uh, tapers down twenty percent per year. Unless there's an extension of that, but you know, for now, any real estate can be exchanged for any other real estate. So it's, you know, obviously in this context, if somebody has an 80 acres, that's, you know, 20 miles away and uh, something comes up for sale that's next door to another parcel that they own that they want to maybe consolidate or combine tracks or maybe something's a higher quality uh, farm. uh, Section 1031 allows somebody to sell that property or that farm. Uh, and reinvest those dollars into the new farm that they want to be into. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, it's not just farms for farms. Any investment real estate can be exchanged for any other investment real estate or or property use in the trader business. Um, so office, retail, storage, um, farms, really anything can be traded for anything else.
0: Yeah, so, so for the farmer out there that is wanting to, like you say, sell that, 80 that's 20 miles away, and maybe there's an 80 that's right next to their home place and they wanna consolidate, that's pretty straightforward. Also, if the farmer is, let's say getting close to retirement and decides, hey, I got enough farmland, I got this 80 that's 20 miles away, but I'd rather maybe uh, diversify into other real estate, like you say, an apartment building or mini storage, they can also do that, correct? Uh that's exactly right. Now, what's unique about farm property is that we have lots of depreciable property that farmers might not understand can still be exchanged, even though we took regular depreciation, such as a hog barn, a uh, tiling that's in the ground, a grain bin, those type of assets. That is what we call Section 1245 real property. It's still considered to be real property but it is depreciable. Now that can be exchanged. But what's unique about that, Dave, is that in order to be exchanged, we have to then exchange it into other 1245 real property, which can be uh, sometimes can be detrimental to the farmer. Have Have you seen where that has sort of uh, come to hurt the farm farmer trying to do the exchange?
1: um yeah you know it's 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 to your point it's not a, a 1031 exchange issue you know a hog building grain bins you know any of those single purpose ag type assets can be exchanged for other real estate but the the recapture provisions of 1240 for, 1245 uh, they take precedence over section 1031 um, so you know, yeah. When somebody says, "Hey, I've got a hog building. I want to go into a bare piece of piece of farm ground," um, that does generally does not work. Uh, to the extent they've taken accelerated depreciation, because the depreciation recapture can kick in, uh, even though ten thirty one ordinarily, you know, you would think would work. So those those are you know real real sticklers and can be unfortunately pretty problematic. So yeah, to your to your point, I mean, you would need to go into other replacement property with other 1245 assets, as you described. Uh, sometimes there are commercial assets, convenience stores, car washes, you know, some some types of highly depreciable, uh, you know, specific use. Commercial assets would have a lot of 1245 property. But, but yes, that's definitely a, a hiccup that we see a fair amount
0: of. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of, of doing an exchange itself. Uh, and now, there are still some simultaneous exchange out there, but I'm going to say that would be um, less than 1% of the 1031s that I ever see. Matter of fact, it's like 0.001%. I think you are dealing with what we call deferred. Tax-free exchanges or tax-deferred—I should say tax-deferred exchanges—go through some of the mechanics of if somebody's interested in doing an exchange and they come to you. Go through some of the mechanics. Do you have to let them know what's going on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I think the easiest way to describe, you know, is, is describe this is, you know, really the initial phone call. So, you know, farmer calls and says, uh, "Hey, Dave, received your name from accountant or attorney." Um, and we start diving into you know what's the transaction so using that 80 acre example you know first question i always ask is how much you selling for and what's your basis and you know the basis is the tax cost that's what somebody originally invested Uh, you don't have to pay taxes so if somebody buys a farm for five hundred thousand dollars they sell it for a million dollars there's five hundred thousand dollars a gain uh, that we're talking about so you know m- you know my first question is is have you talked to your tax person about you know how much tax you would pay? Is it worth doing an exchange because sometimes somebody will say, gosh, I'm selling this farm for you know eight hundred thousand dollars I paid you know seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and yeah uh, you know, I'm gosh, gosh, I'm saying, well, hey, have you talked to your tax person? It might not be worth, mo- you know, moving forward with an exchange, and 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 so we want to understand what's, the, what are the tax implications first and foremost. So having those trusted advisors are really key. Um, you know, next question is, okay, um, you know, who's handling, who's handling the closing? When is it closing? Uh, because. Absolutely. You know, if if your listeners are taking one thing away from this conversation is you do not want to close on the sale or the purchase without first having exchange documents in place. And that's where our, our company comes in. The IRS requires that you work with a, a qualified intermediary, which is a, a an IRS definition for an independent, disinter- disinterested third party uh, to structure the transaction and hold the exchange funds. But if you are to close on the sale or the purchase before having that that uh, mechanism in place, you cannot exchange. I mean, in fact, you, you know, you, you're, you're done. So, yeah. uh, you know, step one, reach out to the qualified intermediary, get documents in place, talk to a professional that knows what they're doing.
0: So let's let's back up a second, you got that farmer that uh, paid 500,000 for the land, they're going to sell it for a million dollars. And let's say that farmer Comes to you and says, "Well, I'm only going to reinvest maybe four hundred thousand dollars, and I know that's going to allow me to uh, defer forty percent of my gain. What do we have to tell the farmer then?"
1: Excellent question. Um, so sometimes folks think, "Gosh, all I have to do is reinvest that gain," and that's not the case. So in in you know our five hundred thousand dollar basis, $1 million dollar sale example, some folks are thinking, "Gosh, I just reinvest five hundred, I'm good to go." That's not the case. So uh, the, you know, the IRS and, and Congress said the reason that 1031 is in place is because you're keeping your dollars in, in, invested. You're, you're, you're not pulling cash out. You're not reducing your debt. If you're selling for a million dollars and you buy for a million dollars, we want to incentivize you to keep all those dollars working within the economy. And so in that case, you know, the, the, the rule is to defer all your tax, you need to buy as much or more than what you sold for. So the million dollars is your target or a million plus. Uh, you don't have to do that. You can do a partially deferred exchange. So, if we were to buy for nine hundred thousand dollars, one hundred thousand dollars would be taxed. That's the trade down in value, but you defer tax on the difference between your basis and what you paid. So, in my example of nine hundred thousand dollars, our basis was five hundred. So, if they buy for nine hundred, they're deferring tax on four hundred thousand dollars. They're paying tax on yeah. Um, yeah, so a hundred.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say a lot of the people I talked to in your example of 500,000, they think if they invest 500,000 that they're gonna defer 50% of the gain. Well, no, the answer is you defer no gain until you spend at least 500,000. Then once you go above 500,000, then you start deferring your gain dollar for dollar.
1: Well, that's right. And and so it gets into the you know fact that 1031 is not a tax avoidance tool. You know, you know, whenever folks sell their home, you know, a couple can have up to $500,000 a gain and avoid the tax altogether if they cash out after having owned it and lived in it for two out of the last five years. 1031 is different. 1031 is a tax deferral. It's time value of money. So instead of, you know, the $500,000 example, if we're paying tax at state and federal of $150,000. If we go reinvest that into the new farm, we get to use the government's $150,000 to build our investment holdings and, and to continue to keep our cash within our operation and our asset base. Uh, whereas if somebody had to cash out and, and then buy, they'd be working with $850,000 of value versus, you know, a, a million. So that's, that's you know, the simple point is, you know, you know, you're deferring the tax because your basis of that $500,000 basis goes into the new property first. And then every dollar you buy over your basis you know the five hundred thousand dollars every dollar over 500 is deferred so um you got to start with that baseline basis number and go from there
0: yeah and then some people get this feeling that i can't sign any type of purchase sales agreement i got to come talk to you first and the reality is they can still go ahead and sign the purchase and sales agreement they can get the deal done But before they close, before they actually close on that sale, as you mentioned, they need to get a hold of somebody like your firm in order to get the documents drawn up.
1: That's right. Yeah. So it's the closing date that controls the deadlines. Uh, Somebody can enter into purchase agreements to sell and to buy. You know, you want to make sure you close on the sale first and the purchase second, if you can. and, and so, uh, yes, you're, you're exactly right. You can not enter into purchase agreements.
0: Okay. And then let's say that uh, the, uh, the exchanger has got all those purchase, or all the uh, documents signed with you, the deal is closed. How many days do they have to identify the property that they want to purchase? And then once they do that, or how many days then do they have in order to get the uh, transaction completed?
1: Uh, you bet. So let's let's use an example of an auction that happened this last Saturday on April 1. So auction, sale occurred, purchase agreement was entered into. We know we can enter into purchase agreements without any issues, but the auction closing date is set for May 1. Um, now, the, the, the deadlines that you refer to begin on the date of closing. So in our example here on May 1, if the exchanger sells on that date or closes, there are 45 days from that date to identify a new property. And identification is is simple. It's not a big deal. We provide a set of forms to the, to the exchanger that says, "Hey, you know, here's you know three properties. Uh, I'm going to list with the legal description, or it can be a, an address if it's a, a home or a, an apartment building, or it could be a, an aerial map or uh, a tax assessor parcel number. There, there's you know ways to easily identify. But uh, within 45 days from April one would be the identification deadline. So that's, you know, takes you to
0: actually uh, it's May 1 May 1, right? Dude? May
1: one. Yep, sorry, yep. sorry, yep. May 1. That <laughs> takes you to mid June. And then you've got 180 days from May 1
0: to wrap
1: up the purchase. So you know, that identification deadline, and then you have to have it finished within 180 days, those two time periods run together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're uh, doing a transaction late in the year after, let's say October 1st, uh, maybe November 1st, you do have to realize that it's the earlier of 180 days or the due date of the tax return, but that's including extensions. And in order to actually report the transaction on the tax return, we got to have that replacement property done anyway. So I typically don't see that being a big deal, but if a farmer does have a transaction going on, late in the year, they do need to let their accountant know right away, so they make sure they have an extension done if that does not close before April 15th.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that we do is, you know, just like when folks, you know, receive their 1099s, those have to be issued before uh, January 31. We'll pull up all of our exchanges and send a letter out to anybody who has a pending transaction that says, hey, if you're going to have this exchange, you know, go past your tax return due date, you need to pile an extension. Yeah. So it's easy to get the full 180, but you just need to be aware of it.
0: Yeah. Now, you mentioned the three properties. Now, a farmer may say, hey, I want to buy more than three properties. Let's say they have a larger transaction going on and they want to buy more than three properties. Is that still allowed to?
1: It is um, the, the easiest way to think through an exchange is to start with the three property rule, which is simple. You know, you can pick out three properties. So, if, you know, in our million dollar farm, um, you know, say somebody wanted to uh, buy four or five properties and, and they didn't want to be limited to three. Well, the 200% rule allows somebody. It's a different rule. You have to choose between the three property and the 200% rule. But the 200% rule says, okay, let's double the value of what we sold. So we sold for a $1 million, double that amount is $2 Exchanger could identify any number of properties provided the total value did not exceed $2 million or 200% of what we sold. So if I had four properties worth $500,000 each or I had five properties worth $400,000 each or eight properties worth $250,000 each as long as the aggregate value of all those that we identify does not exceed two million dollars in our example, that would be where that rule would come into play.
0: Yeah and and where we have to be careful on that is let's say that there are um, you know five properties that they want to buy and let's say they're all listed for sale and the sales price or the listing price on that is let's say in your example 2.2 million. But the exchanger says, "Well, I know I can buy it for less than two million. I'm going to put down less than two million. There's some risk there that if they ever got audited, and you know the IRS was able to track down those listings that you would blow the 200% rule. So I, I just want to caution people out there: don't get too um, too aggressive with that 200% rule."
1: Yeah, hey, Paul, I got a question for you, Um, you know, one of the the gurus and experts, you know, I, I, you know, if you're looking at that 200% rule and you had a broker price opinion or some comps that you could point to. Uh, that said, hey, these list prices are, are way inflated. I mean, what would make you feel comfortable to, you know, work? Yeah, with I,
0: I, I think, like you say, because a lot of times we know listing price is not what the price that the transaction is go for. I mean, certainly if the listing is six months old and you have some type of broker opinion that is reliable, uh, I'd be comfortable with that. Uh, I just, you know, I, I just want to make sure that the exchanger understand, hey, there is some risk there uh, that uh, as anything with dealing with IRS, the better the documentation, the less chance you're ever going to have an issue.
1: That makes sense.
0: Now, let's say that uh, that the taxpayer has identified three properties. They're getting close to the end of the um, exchange period, and all three properties have been sold to somebody else, and they can't close on those three properties. Can the exchanger then go in and replace it with different properties?
1: Um, You cannot, um, yeah. and it's, it's not even up for debate. It's not gray area. It's nothing. <laughs> you yeah. know, there are no options, and it- before and I, I do want to talk about presidentially declared disaster areas because that's an important topic, I think, especially now. but just going back to the the initial uh, question, once we're past day 45, you are stuck with whatever properties you identified. So um, up to day 45 you can amend the ID, you can change it, you can do whatever you want. but if you're on day you know 170 and everything's been sold and in you know you're faced with you know paying tax, you cannot change that ID. And and uh, it's not just frowned upon. It's it's just it's not legal. So yeah. You,
0: yeah,
1: you can't do it.
0: Now the the federally disaster areas, does that then extend that time period for the exchanger to be able to uh, finish the exchange?
1: It can. Yes. there are some IRS rulings that typically come out uh, they're not rulings, but they're notices. Uh, whenever you know there are counties within you know this you know the the tornado damage states or hurricanes, you know basically yeah. that those deadlines can be extended. If the relinquished or replacement property has been impacted or the taxpayers impacted, there's more nuance to it than that. But in those circumstances, there is potential for an extension.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in that case, if that was to happen for the taxpayer, I think the the taxpayer would be good on the Form 8824, which is where we... you know, describe the exchange and report the exchange that, you know, I would probably attach some type of footnote saying if you went past the 180 days, hey, this property, the replacement property is located in this county. It was a federally des- declared disaster area. Therefore, our extended due date of this was X, Y, Z. You know, just, just, just to now, that doesn't mean the IRS is ever going to read those things. That's what I found out lots of times I've put very good information in the return I get some type of letter from the IRS saying, "Hey, you didn't do this right," and I'm like, "Here's the information in the return. Please read it, and then it's okay."
1: Yeah, and I think one of the important jobs of a qualified intermediary is to make sure that that's in a package for the tax advisor to prepare the return. So, whenever there are um, disasters, uh, we'll you know we'll provide notices and work with the exchanger and their advisors to. Uh, work through the deadlines so that it's, you know, clear what's happening and what we're doing during the exchange so that, you know, beyond the 8824 statements, you have that documentation, that packet, uh, you know, at at your disposal to, you know, work with in the event there isn't on
0: it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Um, so we we've gotten the exchange done. So that's. Fairly straightforward. Now, what, what would be the typical fee uh, for uh, a fairly simple exchange? You know, there's one sale, there's one purchase. What what would be a typical fee for those type of transactions?
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, our fees are, it's pretty, I'll just tell you what our fees are. So, if somebody sells the relinquished property and one replacement property, we charge $1,000 to set up the documents and work with the exchanger and and walk them through it and make sure everything's done you know, correctly. So a 1000 when they sell, um, if they buy new property, we charge a second leg fee of 750. Um, so it's a total of 1750 for a two property exchange. Uh, we don't charge a second leg fee if somebody does not purchase replacement property. Um, and the only other thing I would add is, you know, additional, you can sell multiple relinquished properties. You can sell 280s and go into a 160 or you could sell, um, you know, one larger farm and go into you know, three or four farms, there's additional for each additional closing, we charge 750 uh for, you know, for each set of processes.
0: Okay. Okay. Now that's, that's the, I'm going to call it the simple, uh, well, and then the funds, when they come in, I think you then put them into some type of segregated account. And then does the exchange get any interest on those funds? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. No, we open up Separate accounts, that's really, you know, key, really important. So, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the components of of our process is the bank's going to send a statement to the exchanger, a monthly statement. It's for the benefit that they get their own. Uh, um, They see what's going on. Now, as far as the interest, uh, you know, what we do is pay at the national rate. It's uh, basically the national average money market rate. Um, you know, these funds can be on deposit for a day, they can be on deposit for 45 days or, you know, for longer, but basically it's a national average rate that they would receive.
0: Okay, okay. Now, again, this is the what I call the easy exchange. What if the farmer comes to you and says, hey, this property is coming up for sale, I'm going to bid on it at the auction, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it, but I haven't sold my property yet. Can they enter into some type of exchange to accomplish that?
1: they can. So you are referring to the reverse exchange. Um, and it, it you know what that allows somebody to do is to close on the purchase of a new property. And then you know, so let's use my my auction example, except in reverse. So let's say that, you know, this past weekend, 160 came up for sale, neighbors are selling it, it hasn't been sold for sale for 50 years, bid on it Buy it. closing as May one. And then I've got 80 acres, 20 miles away. I want to get sold to transfer back into this, but I don't have time to get it marketed properly. I haven't talked to a, a real estate broker yet. Um, so the reverse exchange allows us to set up an uh, an entity to take title to that 160 on May one. Another way to think about it is it's being parked. Uh, that 160 be parked with our company, and then from May one there would be 180 days to. Sell that 80 acres uh, and transfer it back into that property that's parked with us. So the reverse exchange um, is a an incredible tool for uh, for situations where something needs to be bought quickly because you know it's a good value. I mean, you know, say, you know, somebody says, "Okay, I'll sell this to you for fifty thousand dollars under market," or you know, at a discount. And you're like, "Gosh, I've got to buy this because I know yep. I can sell mine." at today's values, uh, you know, for a strong price. So that reverse exchange mechanism allows folks to do it, um, you know, buy first and sell second.
0: And the key on that, because this is uh, uh, what we call a safe harbor reverse exchange is they do need to make sure that they fall and get that done within 180 days, because if they fall outside of the safe harbor, they've sort of blown the reverse exchange at that point, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think, uh, I think we could probably, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think if I've missed anything on this. We've talked about the 45-day date, the 180-day date. Uh, we've talked about the identification. We've gone through some of the rules. I, I think we've covered uh, quite a bit of it. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on that, Dave, that we haven't covered?
1: Uh, no, I think we're good. Um, you know, we've got some resources on our, our webpage. There's a reference guide with all those simple rules on a two page document. Um, and, and obviously if you know, we're in the business of handling exchanges. So if anybody has questions, we're more than willing to answer, answer questions.
0: Okay. So before we end, I think what I'd like to do is take a quick uh, break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and just talk about a little bit of the trends that you're seeing in the exchange of farmland and so on. And then we'll be done with the uh, podcast. Sounds great.
1: How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reynchie, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Roboagri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future
0: whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Rabo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions.
1: With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Rabo Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Rabo Finance.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA Podcast. We're going to continue our conversation with Dave Brown from IPE 1031. Uh, so, Dave, we talked about the sort of the nuts and bolts of 1031s. Let's do a little bit deeper dive into some of the trends that you've seen lately, as far as the number of transactions dealing with farmland, maybe over the last couple of years.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a big question. <laughs> you know. Ah, uh, farmland through interestingly, through thick and thin um, has has just been steady. Um, and you know, besides you know being uh, out, outpacing the s and p five hundred for you know a huge percentage of time when you factor in total return, uh, yield and appreciation. I mean, it's it's viewed as a hedge against inflation. um it's a fight to safety. Uh, you know, as Warren Buffett says, you know, he'd rather have all the farmland than, than all the gold in the world, just because you know there is a return and and you know that that intrinsic you know core value to to an acre. Um, so you know, it it, it has stayed strong. Um, the last few years have been. Um, robust to say the least. I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, the stimulus and and again, folks you know, looking for a hedge against inflation. but um, you know, we've our, our transaction volume went up, you know uh, by 400 exchange transactions just within the last couple of years. I mean, that's per year. So um, you know, really, really strong. The market, you know, continues to be strong. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, maybe your listeners know this. The other interesting part of, of farmland is, at least in the Iowa, 80% is is owned debt-free, and uh, nationally, the LTV on farmland is 12%, meaning uh, farmland is, you know, has 88% equity is the national average. So uh, we're just in a it's 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 a remarkable asset class. It's really coming to its own. Um, you know, it's it's you know, farmers, it's landowners. Um, you know, it's obviously there's some investors and and it, but it's really come on the radar for for a number of reasons. But it's uh, uh, it's been a real strong market.
0: Yeah, yeah, I certainly know twenty one was pretty strong. Twenty two was very strong. Uh, I think twenty three is is. Is strong, but maybe not quite as many transactions. Or are you seeing that, or are you still seeing quite a few transactions in twenty three compared to twenty two or twenty one?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's coming back to um, to where it was pre pandemic uh, and pre stimulus. I mean the the uh, interest rates are are definitely having impact, you know, on on every asset class. So um, it is definitely backing off.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, and, and it's interesting. I'm going to have a, a another podcast with Jim Rothermick from uh, from Iowa appraisals here, I think in the next week or so. and and you know, he does a listing of all the uh, transactions, farmland transactions that happen weekly and monthly in, in Iowa. And, and just looking at it, I, I values seem to be holding up pretty good. Uh, they're not increasing like they were in 21. And I think part of that too, was you know everybody was worried about Biden coming in and and you know eliminating 1031 exchanges and and increasing the capital gains rate so I think that was a lot of the impetus for those transactions in 21 so we'll we'll see what happens but like you say it's still a pretty good market certainly better than maybe some of the other real estate markets out there
1: uh yeah it's been solid um and and Paul, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, um, you know, there there's always going to be a, an emphasis, a congressional emphasis on pay-fors. Uh, how do you pay for, you know, spending programs? 1031 has been mentioned uh, in, during the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act when the Republicans controlled, it was mentioned during the infrastructure bills it continues to be on the radar but one thing i can tell you with 100% certainty there's there's been case studies there's been uh academic studies and this is a bipartisanly supported proposal when folks understand it and when they're educated we we've uh, I'm a part on our government affairs committee for our national trade organization and I've participated in a number of fundraisers uh and and when folks understand you know we're not we're not avoiding tax, we're deferring tax. It keeps the economy going. It keeps, you know, things, uh, it keeps cash in, in farmers and landowners' pockets because they're not having to pay that to the government. Uh, universally, it's supported. And, um, you know, it's, and I, the other thing I can tell you is, you know, we've taken our statistics and our transactions, and 99% of land is exchanged into 99% of, of land. I mean, people stay within the asset class, people are using it for, you know, consolidating acres, bringing acres closer to home. It's used for conservation easements. When folks are selling to NRCS, they can take a permanent easement and in exchange into another farm. So there, there's tremendous benefits. It's universally supported by the A to Z of every ag association out there. And I, I mean that literally, Farm Bureau, Corn yeah. Growers, Soybeans, everybody. So make sure, you know, your listeners that, you know, be very supportive of 1031 because it is a it is a the lifeblood to to a lot of rural economies and and farmers' ability to reposition and keep cash in their operations. Yeah,
0: totally agree. Totally agree. Well, again, Dave, this has been a great conversation dealing with the 1031 exchanges. Uh, I may have another call with you in another few months, and we'll just see if anything has changed. That
1: sounds amazing, Paul. I appreciate the top opportunity. It's always a pleasure.
0: Okay. Again, this is the uh, Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nefer, your host, signing off.